Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. John 7, 25-39 Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he is from. As he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out, You know me, and you know where I am from. Yet I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Then they tried to seize him. Yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. However, many from the crowd believed in him and said, when the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about him, and so the chief priests and the Pharisees sent servants to arrest him. Then Jesus said, I am only with you for a short time, then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said to one another, Where does he intend to go so we won't find him? He doesn't intend to go to the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? What is this remark he made? You will look for me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Our passage this morning is in John chapter 7, and we began, we began John 7, so we're kind of in the middle this week. We began John 7 uh, the week before Advent, so in November, so we might need to dust off our memories a little bit, right? Um, everything that has happened up to this point in John 7 is happening during the Jewish festival of shelters. Maybe your translation says the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths. It's kind of all the same thing, this Jewish festival of shelters, which if you remember from the beginning of John 7, this was a week-long festival where Jewish people would remember their time in the wilderness after God had rescued them from Egypt. And so it was one of the, it was one of the pilgrimage feasts of, of the Jews where they were expected to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this particular festival. And one of the ways that they would celebrate this is that they would spend a week living in these makeshift tents. They'd get sticks and leaves and twigs and all these things, and they'd make like makeshift shelters to live in for a week to remember their time in the wilderness. And as important as those tents were in, in this festival, 
The festival of shelters was really in a big way, actually a festival of water. Because one of the most memorable and important parts of, of the feast was a water ceremony that would happen every day of the feast. And, and here's what would happen. So each day, the priests would go to the pool of Siloam and they would draw water from the pool with these golden pitchers, right? And so they would take these pitchers and they'd be led by the high priest, you know, from the pool through the, like, through the city into the temple. And as they were walking, the priests, the people who were looking, who were watching, would sing Psalm 113 through, through Psalm 118. That's called the halal. And they would sing this as the priests were walking with their pitchers of water and as the, as, you know, the, the song crescendos in Psalm 118, the people would cry out three times, uh, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. And as, they, as the whole thing kind of like reached this pinnacle moment, the priests would pour out the water into this giant bowl kind of before the altar, right? And so they had this giant bowl of water and then also over here, they, they would have a giant bowl of wine. And so they would pour this out uh, b before the Lord and uh, before the altar. They would, it would crescendo and they'd pour it in the bowl and then take the bowl and pour it out before the Lord. Now, the reason they did this was because while they remembered like living in these tents, they also remembered God's provision of water in the wilderness, and God's provision of rain in the wilderness. Because this isn't wilderness like Iowa wilderness. Like the most wilderness we get in Iowa is, is Highway 20, right? Like that's, the, that's our, especially if you pass Parkersburg, it's like good luck if you, if you didn't fill up and if you're hungry, like there's nothing, you'll probably die out there. And so like that's our wilderness, right? But it's still green, it's still lush. Like you could probably live off of, you know, the vegetation maybe. But for them, the wilderness was the desert. In water is essential for life, but especially in the desert, water is truly, truly a matter of life and death. And so this water ceremony would remind them of God's provision of water in the wilderness. And what we have here in John chapter 7 is Jesus is directly connecting himself to the water, which was a central part of their festival of shelters. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has talked about water. We've seen water several times through the book of John at this point. And then even Jesus, as he, as he has that interaction with the woman at the well in John chapter four, he declares to her, like, like come to me and drink, like I can give you living water. So it's not, it's not weird that Jesus is talking about water once again. But this morning, what we're gonna do is we're gonna see four things about this living water that Jesus has already referred to in John chapter four. And here's what we're gonna see about this water. We're gonna see who it's for, we're gonna see where it's from, we're gonna see what it is, and we're gonna see what it does. So this living water, who is it for, where is it from, what even is it, and what does it do? So first, who it's for. If you have your Bible, you can look at verse 37 in John chapter seven, and you'll notice that Jesus says who it's for. Here's what it says. If anyone is perfect, let him come. It doesn't say that. <laughs> You're like, which translation is he reading from? It doesn't say that. If anyone is put together, let him come. If anyone is good and moral, let him come. Jesus doesn't say any of those things. What does he say? 
if anyone is thirsty. If anyone is thirsty. See, what you need in order to receive living water from Jesus is to recognize your thirst. See, you don't come to Jesus full of self-sufficiency. No, who this living water is for is for those who recognize their deficiency. That they recognize that I don't have what I need and I can't get it on my own, right? See, it seems like a no-brainer that if you're thirsty, well, if you're thirsty, then just drink water. Like, come on, that's, that's kind of like easy, right? Now, recently, uh, Cornell Medical University did a study where they found that about 75% of Americans are chronically dehydrated. Like right now, most of you are dehydrated. Whether you know it or not. Like chronically dehydrated. And part of the reason for this obviously would be that, well, we don't drink enough water. We should drink more water and then we wouldn't be dehydrated. Yeah, that, that's one reason. But another reason why, why we're chronically dehydrated is that often we actually confuse being thirsty for being hungry. And so what, what happens, it, like, it, if you're a parent, maybe you're with me in doing this. Like, what's the first thing you do when you put the kids to bed? Like, you finally, like, I got some me time. Where's the first place you go? To the kitchen. <laughs> like, you raid the pantry, right? Whether you're hungry or not, honestly, that's just kind of what you do, right? Like, but you go and you, you it's like, I'm hungry. It's like, probably, maybe. Probably not. I mean, you didn't eat dinner that long ago, right? Like, the reality is, is that you're probably thirsty. And just as we try to satisfy our thirsty bodies with the late night junk food of our pantry, we'll snack at the buffet of the world to satisfy our thirsty souls. You say thirsty souls. That, that's, a weird, that's a weird thing to say. What, what is a thirsty soul? Have you ever wondered why it is that no matter how much money you get, it's not quite enough? I've never met anyone who's, who has said like, I've got plenty of money, please don't give me more. I've never met that person. Maybe you know that person. If you do, I'd like to meet them. Like, I've never met that person. No matter how much money you get, you always want more. No matter how much power you get, no matter how much status you get, no matter, no matter it could be the day after you got a promotion, you might be, you're probably like looking for like, what's the next rung of a ladder? Like no matter how much romance you get, no matter how many relationships, like you get that feeling and it's just all great. There's that spark, there's that fire, but then it starts to go down, doesn't it? You don't stay in that. That's why it's called the honeymoon phase. It's not just called life. It's the honeymoon phase, because you know like eventually that's gonna come to an end and welcome to life, right? It's like, no matter how much romance you get, you could always use more, you always want more. It's why maybe you're the kind of person who works their fingers to the bone to be liked by everybody, to be well-regarded by everybody, 
to be respected by everybody. You try as hard as you can to be a good person, be a good moral person, so that maybe, like, maybe other people will accept you, maybe other people will receive you, and maybe even God himself will look at you, you know, in a, in a good light. Like, if my good, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then, then maybe God will go from, like, frowning at me to smiling at me. Like, if I can just be a good enough person, then maybe God will be happier, maybe others will be happy as well. Like, that, that's a thirsty soul, See, a thirsty soul is misdiagnosing our deep need for God and trying to fill it with anything but God, right? Like this is what Jeremiah is talking about in Jeremiah 2, verses 12 and 13. He says this, he says, my people have committed a double evil. Two things, they've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they've dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. They've forsaken the fountain of living water, the fountain that, that is endlessly flowing, endless streams, endless water. They've forsaken that and they've gone and dug cisterns. Like cisterns don't produce water. Buckets don't produce water. You fill buckets with water, right? But not only that, they've gone and they've found their own buckets that don't even hold water. They've got broken buckets. And when you look to anything, even your own morals, your own goodness. When you look to anything but God to give you what only God can give you, you have traded raging rivers for broken buckets. Who is this living water for? It's for the thirsty. It's for the empty-handed. It isn't for the self-fulfilled and the self-righteous. It isn't for the person that says, like, my life is good and, and a little bit of Jesus would be nice. Like, maybe Jesus can kind of get me the rest of the way there. It's like, no, like, the living water of Christ is for the person who comes, who sees that you bring nothing to God except your total need for him. Like, God, only you have what I need and I can't get it on my own. Living water is for the thirsty. So that's who it's for. So where is it from? It's who it's for. Where is it from? Now remember, this, this water ceremony was their way of celebrating God's provision uh, for one of their greatest needs in the wilderness. They're in the desert. You need water. And if you go back and read Exodus 15, what you're going to see is that Pretty much immediately after they cross over the Red Sea, they sing a song of praise in response to God. That's always a good way to respond to what God has done by singing praise to him. Immediately, like immediately after that song ends, the first concern on the forefront of their mind is, where are we going to get water? They travel for three days, can't find water, start to complain that they don't have water. It would have been better if we would have stayed in Egypt. Like, really? I don't think so. But they're complaining about water. And then fast forward to Exodus 17, and this is the thing that would, be, that would have been on the forefront of a Jewish person's mind during this water, fest, like this water ceremony during the Festival of Shelters. They would have, as the, as, the, as the priests are pouring out water, carrying water, they have Exodus 17 on their mind. And here's what it is. So Exodus 17, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Not the first time this has happened. So look at what God does to provide water for his people. The Lord answered Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I am going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. 
When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And then here's Jesus. As the Jews in Jerusalem have on the forefront of their mind during this water ceremony, water coming from the rock in Exodus 17. Here's Jesus in chapter seven, standing up saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. What is Jesus saying in this moment? He's saying, I am the true fountain. I am the true stream. I am the true source of water. I am the one who will, who will quench your thirsty souls. Now, like this is basically the equivalent of you standing up at Thanksgiving going, if anyone is hungry, let him come to me. I am the true and greater turkey that will fill your empty stomach. Like, like for us, we go like, that is crazy, right? But Jesus, for Jesus, this is true. Like this, he is, the, he is the spiritual fulfillment of a physical reality that happened to the Jews in the wilderness. And the reason why we know that is because if we look later on in the New Testament, Paul grabs this theme in 1 Corinthians 10 and he says this, check this out. He says to the Corinthians, now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. That's the Exodus event. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. Remember back in John 6, he connects himself as the bread of life, as being like, I am the spiritual fulfillment of the manna that came from heaven. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see what's going on in this whole moment? I mean, these are three verses, but if you're a Jew at this time, like what you're thinking is like when Israel was thirsty in the wilderness, when there was no water in sight, when there was no way for them to get it on their own, God provided the rock. And God provided the rock that was struck so that from this rock that was struck would flow water to satisfy his people. But don't you see that that rock in the wilderness was just a shadow of the true and greater rock of our salvation because Jesus was the one who would one day be struck by the rod of God's wrath. Would he not? And out from his struck and broken body would flow rivers of living water to all who are thirsty, to all who would come to him and drink. Jesus is the true and greater rock of our salvation who was struck so that we could drink freely from him. For anyone who is thirsty, living water is only found in Jesus Christ. So that's who it's for. That's where it's from. Living water is from Christ. Now, now the question is, what is it? Like, what is this living water then? Well, look at verse 39. Jesus tells us right here. He said this. So everything he's just said, got up and declared this. He said this about the spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the spirit for the spirit had not yet been glorified because Jesus had not 
or had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. What are these streams of water that will flow from deep within those who believe in Jesus Christ? It's the Holy Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit who lives within each and every believer. If you have believed on Christ this morning, if you have received his free gift of salvation, and if you have declared him as Lord and Savior of your life, you right now have the Holy Spirit of God living within you. See, if Jesus is the source, then the Spirit is the substance. If Jesus is the rock, the Spirit is the water. The Holy Spirit... Isn't a, isn't a force. The Holy Spirit isn't an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is God himself, third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is a precious gift. I, I love the way that, that George Whitfield says this. He, he says that the Holy Spirit is the common privilege of all believers. If you are a believer in Christ this morning, you have the Holy Spirit of God living within you. You see, the water of life isn't some code of ethics. It isn't some like moral exceptionalism that so long as you live a better life, then, then, then you will have, you know, living water flowing from it. It's like, no, no, no. The, the, this living water, the Holy Spirit, isn't an award given based on your performance. It's a gift given based on Christ's performance. Like it's nothing that you earn by the work of your hand. It's everything you have been given. What a great gift the Holy Spirit is in the life of the believer. So what is this living water? It's, it's not really a fair question because it's not a what. It's a who. Who is this living water? It's the Holy Spirit of God that lives within believers. And so finally, what does he do? This living water is the Holy Spirit, then what does the Holy Spirit do in believers? Now that's a great question. There are so many things we could go, like we could say, we could go a lot of different directions. We could have like, we could stay here till, you know, dinner time and talk about this. We're not going to, unfortunately. But there's so much we could say about the work of the Holy Spirit, but I want to show you just a few kind of like the primary things that the Spirit does in the life of the, of the believer. And the first kind of greatest thing that the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit shines a gigantic spotlight on the person and work of Christ. The Holy Spirit, when he comes into your life, when, when you receive salvation from Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and then he takes your head and he kind of just like, like, almost rips it off and goes like, like, look, look at who Jesus is. He's not saying like, like, look at who I am. He's like, look at who Jesus is. Look at what he, look, look at what Jesus has done. And how do I know that? We see this later on in John 15. Hopefully you'll forget this by then. So I'm not stealing whoever's preaching that sermon. John 15 says, when the counselor comes, the counselor is like a common name for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. When the counselor comes, the one I send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, when he comes, he will testify about me. And then just a few verses later in John 16, look at what Jesus is still saying about the Spirit. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, 
For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit, the first, the primary, the greatest thing that he does in the life of the believer is to draw our attention and affections to Jesus Christ is to move within us in such a way that as Jesus looks greater, our sin looks more disgusting. Like, like he changes our taste, right? Like as he changes our affections, he enables us and empowers us to live lives of, of, uh, of willing obedience, not under coercion. Here's the thing, you don't, have, you don't have to coerce me to not eat junk food if I know I'm gonna have like a juicy steak dinner. You ever done this? Have you ever not eaten like for most of the day because you know like you're having that meal that night? Am I the only one, right? Like, why do you do that? You go, because if I stuff myself with Cheetos, like, as, like I so badly want to sometimes, because they're great, like, but if I do that, then that steak will taste not as good as it could. And because I know the steak is good, I'm gonna forsake the Cheetos. Right? Like the Holy Spirit does that in the life of the believer. He draws our attention to Christ and says, look how beautiful Christ is. Why in the world would you live in this way? Why in the world would you desire those things when you see the beauty and greatness of Jesus Christ? The Holy Spirit draws our attention and affections to Christ. And as he does that, he empowers us to live lives of faithful obedience, joyfully, with happy hearts. That's what a river does. The Holy Spirit leads us in obedience. The Holy Spirit is a stream of living water. Stream is kind of underselling that because the, the actual word there for stream is river, like a raging river. So last summer, I was kayaking down the Blackhawk Creek. It's called a creek. It's not a river, okay? Like it's a creek. I was kayaking down the Blackhawk Creek and uh, like an idiot, I... I started off going downstream, which meant that in order to get back to my car, I've got to paddle upstream. It's way easier to go downstream, I'm telling you. So you go a long ways, right? And so like, like I came to a point in the creek. I, it's, again, it's not a river. This, it's like, it was, it was embarrassing. If you would have seen this, you would not respect me as much. And so, like, as I'm paddling upstream, there came a point in the creek that, uh, that the power, power of the water was exactly the power of my paddling. <laughs> Which you know what happens there, right? You just stay still. Like you're going nowhere. I'm exerting all this energy. I'm like, I'm like hating myself for doing this. Right? I'm getting exhausted. I'm sweating. Like even if I wanted to bail out and just carry the kayak, like it's, it's, it's like these like steep banks. I can't even do that. So I'm stuck. I'm stuck in Blackhawk Creek, right? Like, and what's happening there? Like the stream is opposing me. Because that's what rivers do. That's what streams do. You see, you get swept away by rivers. You get opposed by rivers. You get led by rivers. See, here's what happens. I felt really good about this line, okay? So humor me. <laughs> when you submit to a river, you end up going where the river is flowing. 
You like that? But it's true, isn't it? Like when you submit to a river, you end up going where the river is flowing. Like, like when, when you decide to go against the river, you will be opposed. The, the Holy Spirit has a very sensitive nose. And when he comes into your life, there are things that the Spirit of God will oppose within you, not to crush you under condemnation, but to form you more into the image of Christ, to root out sin and disobedience in your life. And when you submit to the river of the Holy Spirit in your life, you will end up going where the Holy Spirit is flowing. This is the great confidence that we have as he empowers us, not only in obedience, but also in joining him in his mission. You remember that? Matthew 28, when Jesus says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations. What does he say at the very end? And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. How is Jesus Christ with us as we go and make disciples? It is by the power of his Holy Spirit who lives within us. It's the confidence that our friends have as they go to East Asia to tell people who have never heard the name of Christ about the great gift of Jesus Christ. It's the confidence that you and I have that whether we go across the street or around the world, it's the confidence that as we go and share this good news of what Jesus has done, that we don't go alone. But the Holy Spirit goes with us and will work through us as we reach people who have not believed in Jesus Christ. So, Christian, one who has been filled with the Holy Spirit of God himself, Christian, are these rivers of living water flowing through you in such a way that the people around you can't help but be drenched by his work in you? Or, have the cares of this life, has the seduction of sin, and has the allure of apathy created within you a spiritual logjam. Like it's, it's, it's not that the Holy Spirit isn't in you, but the reality is, is that the way that we live can quench his work in us. Is there anything in you that is suppressing the work of the Holy Spirit who so desperately wants to turn your attention and affections to Christ and to work in and through you? Is there anything in your life resisting the Spirit's work in you? And what empowered steps of obedience do you need to take to live according to your true identity as a child of God? Don't miss that. I said empowered steps of obedience. Because even in the desire to obey Christ, even in the desire to root out sin in your life, know that that doesn't happen alone. You don't do that alone. Even in that, you do that through the power of the Holy Spirit who empowers you to live obediently. What empowered steps of obedience do you need to take to live according to your true identity as a child of God? Now, maybe this morning you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. Maybe you haven't believed in him for the forgiveness of your sins. My question to you this morning is, are you thirsty? Do you recognize your need? Are you tired of striving for satisfaction? Abandon your broken buckets. 
Turn from your stagnant pools of water. Come to Jesus. Believe in him and receive from him the Holy Spirit who will produce within you rivers of living water that will never run dry. Believe in Christ this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the precious gift that the Holy Spirit is within us. Pray that for anyone who has not believed in Christ and received the Holy Spirit, Spirit, would you open their eyes, make them aware of their need, create within them an insatiable thirst and an awareness that no work of our hands can satisfy. Spirit, would you empower us for obedience and for mission? We thank you for the sweet gift that you are to us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.